very much welcome to the Swedish House of Finance on this most beautiful morning. I'm glad we didn't do this yesterday. Uh, it's so much nicer when the sun is shining. Uh, my name is Per Wiesen. I work here at the Swedish House of Finance and I will moderate this seminar. Uh, I am not going to introduce the subject, the speakers will do that. I'm just going to explain how we have set this up, how the morning will, will be. So the topic, as you see behind me, is the economics of digital currency policy. And we are proud, happy and honored to have Daryl Duffy here with us, uh, who has a long distinguished career as in, in financial economics, is a professor of management and finance at Stanford University and a guest presently at the Swedish House of Finance. And we are so happy that you are here. Uh, and he will make a presentation for, say, 20 minutes uh, on this topic. And after that, since Sweden is sort of well in, in, in the front line in these issues, we wanted to present, give a view of sort of where this issue is in Sweden. So we have been invited Paula da Silva, whom I will present when she comes up to stage a little bit later, and David Vestin from the Central Bank. So after their presentations, we will have roughly 30 minutes for a discussion between the panelists and above all between you and the panelists. I have a bunch of questions, but I don't want to ask them. I want you to ask the questions and make the comments. Um, so so um, for those 30 minutes. So yes, I guess that was what I had to say for the moment. Daryl Duffy, please. The floor is yours for the next 20 minutes. Thank you so much, Pear. Well, I can see that the uh, topic has brought a lot of people out today. I, I looked over the participant list, and I'm uh, very impressed at the range uh, and quality of uh, all the participants. I, uh, I actually got introduced to this topic by uh, Stefan speaking about it at a central banking meeting quite a few years ago. And uh, of course, uh, what's on the tips of everyone's tongues these days is central bank digital currency, which I'm going to discuss, but I think it's only one part of the overall problem of economic policy in the area of digital currencies. There are a lot of different initiatives underway around the world. On CBDCs, uh, yesterday the Atlantic Council came up with its new uh, global map. There are now 105 countries globally that are exploring central bank digital currency at one stage or another. 50 of those are in the form of uh, advanced development <coughs> projects. But very few countries have actually deployed a CBDC. And the reason uh, I think we're going to discuss today is not only technology, it's also economic policy. What is it going to do to banking systems? Are there other approaches that are more effective? I hope we'll engage on that. Uh, we have a great panel of uh, experts that are going to interrogate and, uh, and maybe cross uh, uh, with me uh, in, our, in our discussion. I'm going to give you some highly opinionated views, and I'm not sure if I'm going to provoke uh, a lot of disagreement. Let's see how this goes. So I better get out of the way, I guess. So the, if you read the uh, payments technology literature, uh, the two protagonists in the story are somehow always called Alice and Bob. <laughs> and uh, here today, Alice is buying a loaf of bread from Bob the Baker. Uh, it's $8 a loaf because I've made these slides in Palo Alto where the cost of living is very high. 
And the question is, how is Alice going to pay Bob? Uh, as Stefan and I were just discussing earlier, there is an issue of wholesale CBDC, which I'm not going to discuss today. Uh, but uh, wholesale CBDC has been around for a long time in the form of central bank money. And I'm going to focus on the retail problem, everything other than payments among banks and central bank. So uh, since the early 1600s at least, there's a standard way to do this, which is still accounts for the vast majority uh, by volume of payments, which is Alice asks, asks her bank uh, to uh, debit her account by $8 and to have her bank credit uh, Bob's bank for $8 in the name of Bob himself. And by and large, uh, most, in most cases, except sometimes in the US where people are still using paper checks, uh, Bob will get the, the message instantly that uh, he will get paid at some point, maybe, uh, <laughs> and uh, he'll give Alice the bread and she'll be gone in a moment. For Alice, the whole experience today is pretty good. I mean, you tap your phone or you tap a card uh, and it, it, does, it seems like no fuss, no muss. But if you look on the back end and you look at what happens to Bob's uh, income statement and balance sheet, it's not as good as, as you might hope. There are a lot of delays in costs, especially in the United States. Ironically, the United States will be one of the last uh, of large developed market economies to adapt uh, its payment system to advanced methods such as CBDCs and other methods I'll discuss. This uh, method uh, of payments by customers of banks, which are the blue dots, through the banking system as I mentioned, has been around since the early 1600s. In Venice, there was a bank called Banco del Giro. It's the same giro or circle. Uh, that's the word for the Giro d'Italia if you're a cyclist. Uh, 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 this is a sequence of debits and credits among banks. And uh, this system is uh, now currently being called into question. And I want to question that question. Is it really necessary to go beyond the traditional uh, giro method of making payments. And the answer seems to be coming down to competition, not technology. That is, uh, banks, in my view, are perfectly capable of providing advanced, inexpensive, uh, fast, efficient payment services, but they're not going to do it unless there is a change in competitive uh, uh, regulation, mainly. The very uh, significant change to this system may come from central bank digital currency. Almost every uh, central bank that's exploring this is exploring what's called a hybrid system by which Alice and Bob access a central bank digital currency through a payment service provider, which in most cases will be a bank. So they'll still face their bank, but the money that they use, instead of being bank deposits will be central bank uh, deposits, in effect. So Alice will send a message the same way she did before, but the message will cause $8 to be moved out of her account at the central bank and into Bob's account at the central bank by one means or another. And again, I'm not focusing on technology today. The depending on how the payment service providers are required to provide interoperability and standardized apps for doing this, this could enliven competition 
in the banking system and create the kind of experience uh, that Bob in particular should have if it were not for some market failures related to incentives for banks. Another approach that's being discussed, in fact, is even closer uh, to becoming reality, in my view, are cryptocurrencies that are used in the actual real market payment system called stablecoins. And in this case, Alice would go to her payment service provider and provide, let's say, $500 from her bank account and receive $500 worth of stablecoin tokens. And then uh, she could pay Bob by transferring tokens from her phone to Bob's payment uh, point of sale terminal. Uh, there is an issue, uh, by the way, the, the, the uh, trust that holds the assets for Alice. The word trust is very important, as we saw two weeks ago when Terra, which was an allegedly stable uh, coin, was not in fact stable and its price collapsed. But it is possible to make stable, stable coins. Uh, for example, you could have a narrow bank that uh, holds only reserves in the central bank and issues stable coins backed 100% by central bank deposits. Uh, there is a big question, at least in the United States, about whether that's a good idea. The Fed has so far resisted, uh, on, in a very controversial move, resisted the idea of giving central bank accounts to fintech payment service providers that would issue stable coins. Uh, I hope we'll get a chance to discuss this uh, later today. Last fall, the president's working group on stable coins issued a report. And if you have a look at the quote, you'll see that the recommendation in this report, by the way, it's an excellent report. The recommendation is that stable coins be permitted in the US payment system only if issued by insured depository institutions. And that seems to cure at least depending on the exact design, cure a lot of the stability concerns. Now you have supervision, you have lender of last resort, you may or may not have deposit insurance and capital requirements, but you have a regime of protections for stability. Uh, the concern, however, is going back to my main design concern is competition. If you really the missing ingredient is competition, do you really want to limit the issuance of stablecoins to insured depository institutions. How does that create competition? That question was raised by Federal Reserve Governor Chris Waller. How does this serve competition? By the way, Chris Waller is dead set against central bank digital currency. He says it's a solution in search of a problem. Uh, basically asserting, as Vice Chair Randall Quarles said last year, that banks are already handling this problem Governor Waller, however, realizes that there's a lack of competition in the banking market for payment services. Stablecoins could enliven that, but if the, it's to be done through bank issuance, my guess is the Fed would have to expand the category of banks and begin giving central bank accounts to fintech payment service providers. Uh, an other option that I've been exploring quite a lot lately is what's called a fast payment system, and you have one here in in uh, Sweden, uh, it's a private fast payment system called Swish uh, for general purpose re retail payments. Many countries have been exploring fast payment systems. The, in the United States, the largest banks already have developed a real-time payment system, which is fast payments. 
However, the Fed was disappointed at the degree of competition afforded by that and decided several years ago to introduce its own fast payment system, uh, basically to ensure that all banks uh, can provide fast payment services. The large banks are very critical of that move. Uh, I want to emphasize that it's not only the technical attributes of a fast payment system that matter. The technical attributes is that it should be available 24-7, 365 with real-time gross settlement, meaning Bob gets the money, he doesn't just get a message, he gets the money and he gets to use the money instantly or within a few seconds. The concern that I have uh, from the competition viewpoint is that at least in the case of FedNow, this payment system is a back-end system that will be provided to banks, not to the general economy, to banks so that they can choose how to provide fast payment services to their customers. Again, uh, if you're trying to create competition, maybe allowing each bank to decide how to deploy a fast payment system is not the most effective way. If I were the head of a very large U.S. bank uh, uh, and reporting to my shareholders about how I'm maximizing shareholder market value, I would not put up a fast payment system in direct competition uh, with my more profitable uh, payment service franchises like credit cards. In the United States, by the way, credit card interchange fees are enormously high compared to what they are in Europe because in, in Europe you've had the uh, insight uh, to regulate down your interchange fees to about one-eighth of the level in the United States. And it's not merely the size of the fee that counts. It's the barrier to entry created when Alice is offered an enormous reward, airline miles or cashback rewards, if she will use her credit card, funded by the interchange fee that Bob the merchant must pay. That barrier to entry is the key competition problem. It's very difficult for a fintech or neobank payment service provider to enter the payment services market when Alice really wants to use her credit card because of the rewards. In Brazil, they've cut through this problem with a form of fast payment system that's directly available to everyone in the economy on a common app. So Alice and Bob are using the same API. The, when Alice pays, she instructs her account provider to move funds from her deposit bank, or, uh, deposit account at her bank into Bob's instantly. And given the interoperability that's available through this app, immediately in Brazil, the adoption rate for fast payments has soared to the point in, at which within the first year, 105 million Brazilian adults now, now are not only have access, they are using this system on a daily basis. Five million a different, uh, additional households have joined the banking system. This is an issue of financial inclusion that is really concerning uh, regulators around the world. How do we achieve financial inclusion? The overlay of providing this uh, fast payment service on top of the back end is uh, cost uh, Brazil $5 million. I learned this from Roberto Campuchnetu uh, two weeks ago. $5 million. This is a much lower hanging piece of fruit for the near-term improvement of payment systems than a CBDC, which 
from my point of view, at least in a country like the United States, will take at least five to 10 years to bring to market, given the policy and technology limits. I know you're much more advanced in, uh, in Sweden with uh, developments in the, in the e-kroner. I've been reading about them, and I hope Stefan will uh, interject later uh, on that point. The, the fees charged to merchants, uh, it's a market-based uh, assessment of fees to merchants for PICS, which is the Brazilian fast payment system, is on the order of 20 basis points. The fees charged to the payment service providers for access to PICS is per transaction $0.0005. It's a very inexpensive to use system. And it's because of its high degree of interoperability and the information provided to, uh, uh, to users, which is uh, uh, very concentrated data, uh, data services, that it's very convenient. It's, uh, as I said, gaining enormous adoption. Where does this competition show up, uh, the lack of competition show up in the, in the uh, United States at least? It's not only in the cost of payment services, it's in the remuneration of the medium of exchange, which is bank deposits. So if you look at the left bar, this is the last time that the Fed achieved a local maximum in its, uh, in its uh, uh, tightening, which was at 240 basis points in April 2019. It's about to exceed that level very quickly. Uh, and at that point in time, uh, I took a snapshot of the average deposit savings rate across the United States. So this is the weighted average across banks of remuneration of savings transactions and transactions deposits, including corporate uh, transactions deposits. And the remuneration is miserable, as you can see. And it's all through lack of competition. What would happen if we had a CBDC or a, a highly effective stable coins or a highly effective fast payment system is that these red bars would zoom up towards the height of the blue bar, and that would be great for depositors, and I'm actually all in favor of that, <laughs> uh, but it wouldn't be so good for bank shareholders. They would, their funding costs would go way up. A huge question that I think is the, probably the most important roadblock to adoption of any of these improvements in payment services in the United States, a huge question is what will that do to bank funding costs? If they raise bank funding costs, what will that do to credit provision? And there's been a lot of pushback from bank industry associations. And then I think you know what I mean by a bank industry association. Over the, any of the types of improvements in service that I described, it is said by the bank industry associations that credit provision will be greatly impaired. It would be effectively a disaster. There was a letter written uh, this week by all of the bank industry associations uh, to uh, uh, leaders uh, of the agencies responsible. Central banks are worried about credit provision and the Fed's major report this year on its central bank digital currency policy, the Fed said a widely available CBDC could reduce the aggregate amount of deposits in the payment in the banking system which could in turn increase bank funding expenses and reduce credit availability. Uh, I would say not so fast. The best available research on this topic, which I'm not going to talk about right now, uh, 
but I've listed at the bottom of this slide, uh, in the interest of time, I'll skip over the, uh, the economic theory. Uh, the best available research on this topic says that if banks are getting their marginal funding from wholesale sources, then a loan that's made to some borrower that uh, is economic will not become uneconomic if the cost of uh, deposit, deposit funding uh, goes up. That's not the marginal source of funding. No, that's a, that's uh, making a very long story very short. Uh, research at the Bank of Canada by Cho and others, uh, and I would particularly point to a new paper that just came out yesterday, I can give you a copy if you like, by Whitehead, Tony Whitehead, Wu, and Kairong Xiao, is showing that when you do a careful calibration in a general equilibrium setting, the cost of credit provision is not significantly impaired by the introduction of a CBDC, and I would say the same thing about a highly effective fast payment system or stablecoin uh, payment system. Let me finish uh, before we uh, before we begin our more general discussion with three uh, pieces of policy. Uh, these are my own views, of course, and uh, I hope I can stimulate uh, uh, some debate over these views. First, I suggest that if competition is the main problem, then bring competition first into the bank rail payment system. Use regulations. Use the introduction of fast payment infrastructure. Use, lower the barriers of entry, for example, reduce interchange fees in order to create a more open, efficient, and competitive bank rail system. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm uh, averse to non-bank rail payment services. In fact, the more the merrier. Uh, allow entry by private stablecoins and fintech banks, subject, of course, to compliance uh, and interoperability standards. Compliance because of safety consumer protection, investor protection, financial stability, but also because, uh, uh, also interoperability standards because of competition concerns. And then finally, don't leave CBDC behind, given the long development times, and you've seen that in Sweden, it takes a long time, it's a difficult technology to master. Uh, begin the work now, invest heavily in CBDC technology. I advise the US, various members of the US government, including people in the White House, and at the Treasury, uh, that they should invest heavily in CBDC technology because it may be that it's necessary in the long run uh, to, uh, for the future of uh, the digital economy that we have smart contracting available in a highly interoperable fashion, that we improve cross-border payment services, uh, that uh, uh, issues of currency substitution and monetary sovereignty, many other issues suggest that every country should be looking into CBDCs and investing heavily in that technology so that once the technology gaps and the policy gaps have been closed, you're ready to deploy it, which is the stance of many countries. If you only start working on it once it's apparent that you should have already developed it and it's another five or ten years, you could get left behind. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop uh, there. I'm very interested in, uh, uh, in getting your reactions. Thanks very much. Thank you. You can take that later. You take all the presentations. Take all the presentations first in a row and then do the good, 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 good. Okay. Could I then ask Paula da Silva mm -hmm. to enter the stage? Uh, anywhere? 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 Paula is CEO of P P27 Nordic Payments, a cross-border Nordic initiative to establish a pan-Nordic payment infrastructure. 
And before that, you worked with SCB, the large Swedish bank, for eight years or so in leading positions. Paula, please, the floor is yours. Thank you. <clears throat> and it's fantastic to be here and, and uh, hear uh, your views on, on uh, this. Um, to start with, it's, it's fascinating to see how different the US is versus um, the Nordics. Uh, we are so lucky here. We are quite digital and we have a quite, uh, I would say, forward-leaning banking market that has, um, as the countries uh, themselves, quite good collaboration um, efforts over the years. The Swedish gyro was formed in 1959. That's quite <laughs> good, even though it's not in the 1400s. Is it too low? Do I need to... Do I have my um, mic on? It is? It's not in the I see, so I'll try to speak a little bit louder. Thank you very much. No, so um, what we will be trying to do uh, in P27, and by the way, P27, Project 27, and it's a mark in time when in 19, um, the uh, amount of people in the Nordics were 27 million people. And the idea is that this reaches everyone. Uh, so what we will be trying to do is to, um, to make what you mentioned um, happen in terms of not having a, a competitive landscape that is... Uh, is uh, um, oh, thank you. I put it like this one. Okay, great. I only have one slide. We are trying to, to take away the inefficiencies and to um, enable the growth uh, between uh, the, uh, the Nordic countries. We have more or less 25% of trade go between the Nordic countries and we need to make that happen in a totally different way. And, and as opposed to Czech economy, we have an extremely digital economy. Uh, and therefore, um, I think the next business case, if we talk business now, is about a robot having to pay for itself for one hour's work. So if you look at that, checks is a quite impossible economy. So therefore, we need to have something that is uh, interoperable. It needs to be resilient in terms of uh, data handling. And it also needs to be efficient in the back end. So between the Alice and Bob transaction, the back end needs to be seamless. And it cannot sit a lot of people with, uh, you know, yellow pens uh, checking if a payment has, has actually uh, arrived. So the difference that we will be uh, trying to do is to enable this for the banking industry and actually in an open market for all kind of players that make the resilience um, efforts that we are trying to create. So it's not a closed um, um, area, it's, it's open for everyone. So that's the difference between uh, potential stable coins that are trying to, to create their own universe, everyone. This is an open one for the, all the, um, the different countries. So uh, enabling growth, enabling resilience, but also creating what I think is, is uh, extremely important. If we just disregard technology, um, we have to be interoperable. And that's, I think, what TIPS is also enabling having the central banks being able to talk to each other uh, in Europe is extremely important, of course, irregardless of if it has to be an FX on top of it, at least you have to have a way of talking to each other. And we don't have that today. And we have Swish uh, in Sweden. 
We have VIPs in Norway, we have uh, Mobile Pay in Denmark, and you have Sirto in Finland, all extremely good. Nothing talks to each other. So while um, everyone in Sweden that is included in the financial sector, and that's also uh, an issue, how can we include everyone? Uh, CDBC doesn't help that because if you're not in a, in a bank account environment, you don't have a bank ID, you cannot actually access uh, the, uh, the next uh, infrastructure either. So financial inclusion is extremely important. That, that might mean that you have a, a way of entering the market that is more yeah, open somehow without enabling um, anti-money laundering. Or, sorry, enabling anti-money laundering. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Freudian slip there. Uh, no, but, but I think that is also an, a point that I just want to make uh, as we start, that data is what we need to, um, to have in the system, not for every bank or for every um, country, but actually cross uh, countries so that you can uh, identify the receiver and the payer. Um, and therefore, P27 is actually an infrastructure that is not only Nordic, but it's actually built on when the, the um, card companies have understood that their um, good margin is threatened, they are looking into uh, enabling payments. And uh, our infrastructure will actually be built on MasterCard payment rails. Uh, so that, that's an, an enigma how, how that has come about. But with the regulator, as you said, coming about saying that, no, you can't have those margins, that has, has uh, created other ways of, uh, of actually uh, interacting in, in the payment space. Uh, so, um, what are we trying to do? Uh, enabling growth, basically, in a uh, seamless way, because today payments is potentially the hinder for growth, which is kind of interesting. It's, it's difficult to pay, as you very well said. Um, it's about resilience and, and uh, the small countries, the small currencies and so forth, have to connect each other, uh, to each other in order to uh, you know, be able to invest as much as is needed in this area and to enable the way of, of um, uh, detecting who is actually on, on both ends of the, uh, of the transaction is extremely important for us and therefore we need to be in a pool of data that is not a bank, it's potentially not a region of banks, it's a bigger uh, chunk and for that you need standardized formats based on ISO and uh, and uh, banks that are willing to invest in this and take risk uh, because those are the ones that have the transactions today so if you can transform that market into something much more resilient that enables the digital economy that's where we are uh, and and um, the collaboration in the Nordics I would say between the RICS banks of the world the central banks and the, um, the private entities is, um, I don't know if it's uh, totally unique, but it's at least very, very good. And I think if that continues, we will have a very efficient market that enables what, what we need to do up here. So let's see if, if we uh, succeed. So the first transaction is talking about Swish. Swish is a dual uh, infrastructure. It's a front end and it's a back end. And the back end is in a regulated environment while the front end is, uh, is not. So uh, we, we will um, uh, switch over um, and upgrade the, the back end of the Swish system as the first uh, part of what we will be doing in P27. Um, and that happens hopefully in November, um, between November and January. Um, and let's see though if it, uh, if it works. <laughs> I think I'll stop there Great. and we can take the debate later. Thank you. On. Thank you. That's in very interesting. Uh, well then, last but least, Torvid Vestin. 
Davis is a senior advisor at the research division at the Riksbank. He has been at the Riksbank for 30 years, if I'm correctly informed. Not, not that long, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's what it said. But for more than 10 years. Okay, okay, okay. I was at ECB and, for another 10 And before that, ECB yeah, and yeah, EIS. Very much welcome. Okay, thanks. Uh, so, the usual disclaimer, uh, this is my personal views, particularly important since both Stefan and Martin is in uh, the audience, <laughs> <laughs> make that clear. Uh, uh, and I want to give you some Swedish perspectives on, on this issue uh, as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the Riksbank has always been heavily involved in the clearing of payments, both as a provider of uh, sort of uh, retail clearing in the sense of providing cash, uh, and also pr by providing uh, sort of central infrastructure for banks to clear payments with each other. Uh, recently, obviously, cash has been declining uh, very much in use in Sweden, and that's a development where I think we are sort of world leaders in a way, probably driven by the nice uh, innovations that we have seen in the, in the uh, financial industry. Uh, and this is sort of related to something specific in Sweden, which is the high concentration in the banking sector. Uh, and this is obviously the pro uh, that Paolo was discussing, which is that it's easier to agree on standards because it's a handful of banks essentially that have to sit down and make a decision. Uh, and this sets the stage for a very efficient uh, payment system and a, and a very nice dialogue between the, the private sector and, and the central bank. However, it comes with a con that there are opportunities to extract rents uh, in, in this market. Uh, and I think Daryl po pointed out uh, very nicely that these, uh, these sort of uh, rents can be hard to measure. You can't just look at the exact fees that people are paying for, for transaction services because some rents are hidden, like, for example, the low deposit rates that Daryl showed uh, graphs on. Um, the second development is that there's a higher demand for instant payments uh, and including a discussion with the fintech industry of, of smart contracts. Uh, and this could sort of not maybe next year or so on, but it could lead to a development where, where private banks might even start to think about tokenizing deposits, uh, allowing instant payments going, sort of bypassing the, the central bank systems. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not inconceivable that this in the long run might threaten the sort of central role of the central bank in payments, which might also threaten uh, the, the implementation of, of monetary policy to some extent. Uh, so do we need a CBDC? You know, is it a solution in, in search of a problem or, or not? Uh, and you know, I think many people also working in the, in the eCorona project, at least in the beginning, sort of from introspective reasons said, no, we don't need one because we have very nice payment services already. We have our switch apps, we have our credit cards. Uh, so it's clear that you know, the arguments for the eCrona must come more from a systemic perspective. Uh, and and you know, one argument is uh, that it could be a more effective way uh, than regulation simply to constrain uh, rent extraction fr from, from the market. Uh, and it might also be a way to sort of fend off these competing technologies that in the long run might threaten the central bank's uh, position in, in payment markets and hence its ability to conduct uh, monetary policy. So what has the Swede Swedish Riksbank been doing in, in the sort of field of payments uh, recently? One thing is that we actually launched a Riksinst, which is an instant payment system only one week ago. So it's extremely uh, recent development. And it, it will, of course, be very interesting to see how, how the industry sort of uh, chooses to, to utilize this uh, platform. And, and as Paula already sort of indicated, this platform is based on the ECB's uh, TIPS platform 
which also sort of promises the possibility for, for cross-border payments uh, down the line. Um, you know, but this is very recent development, so we'll see how, how this will work. We're also undertaking a sort of study of the costs of Swedish payments with results due uh, early next year. And so it will sort of be interesting to see um, what, what comes out for that. And of course, the key, uh, the, the key thing here is that we've launched a CBDC project uh, already a few years ago, uh, which is sort of trying to explore. It's not decided that we should issue a CBDC, but we're, you know, it's deemed important to sort of stay on top of this uh, development and see what the pros and cons are and try to understand what different technologies uh, can, can and cannot uh, deliver here. Uh, so there's lots of work streams in this project and, and reports are coming out on the webpage if you're interested to, to sort of follow that um, uh, progress. Uh, and we're looking at both analytical issues like the ones Daryl emphasized with risks to financial stability, uh, monetary policy implications and so on. And there's also been a, a pilot that sort of has actually played also with private uh, counterparties, both banks and fintech firms to sort of see what could actually a, a sort of a, a, an implementation of an e-crona uh, look like. Okay, so I, I'll end with some very personal views, which has nothing to do with the Riks Bank again. Uh, and, and that is sort of, you know, thinking about it from an academic perspective, at least to me, the, the, the DLT technologies fundamentally solves a problem that the central bank wouldn't have if you issue a CBDC, which is the trust issue, at least in sort of, you know, well-functioning uh, Western democracies, let's say. Uh, uh, so it would be more natural for the CBDC to actually operate through a more account-based uh, type of system. And it's actually interesting to note that uh, we have already had, we've come close to that system in Sweden twice already in the recent past. And the first is that the, the tax authority endows every Swedish citizen with a tax account where you can prepay uh, taxes. Uh, and that, of course, amounts to a, a, a liquid claim on the government, the positive balances you keep on that. Um, and also the National Debt Office until a few years ago had accounts where you allowed Swedish citizens to deposit liquid claims on the Swedish government uh, in an account-based uh, structure. The only difference here was, of course, that there were no payment services connected to those accounts. But of course, if you uh, sort of employ one of the usual systems which, which banks use, that would be a, a very quick way to sort of achieve an account-based uh, CBDC. But uh, as, as Daryl also pointed to, perhaps some of the features that we're talking about on these smart contracts and so on, uh, makes the account-based structure less, uh, uh, le less uh, favorable for some reason. Uh, and we may want to have a more crypto-like um, uh, solution. Perhaps, uh, what about a two-tiered uh, type of system? Like China seems to be experimenting with this, even though it's very hard to get any information on exactly what they're doing. But it seems to be like a combination of an, an account-based structure and also some sort of ledger-based uh, system. And it could be sort of interesting to explore that. Uh, and let me end by noting that actually uh, we have also done something like that in Sweden without thinking about it, which is because the Riksbank issues one-week certificates uh, that are only se sellable to the monetary policy counterparties, but the counterparties can actually resell them on financial markets, which means that we have had a situation for the past few years where private sector participants actually hold very, very liquid claims directly on the central bank. And again, the missing piece is is uh, a sort of payment systems connected to that. So let me end uh, there. Thank you. Thank you. Daryl, please. Yeah. <clears throat>
<clears throat> so I thought uh, before we let the audience in, or if you have any comments on each other, there are um, questions or, or whatever. Let's just jump into a discussion. Okay, okay. Let's jump into the discussion. Yes, please. And name and, uh, and a microphone. My name is Rickard Eriksson, and I work for the Swedish Bankers Association. And um, but I also has an economist with a background in the subfield industrial organization that studies things like competition and pricing and so on. And uh, if you look at the banking industry, I would say that the banking industry is very competitive. It's uh, not a monopoly, but if you look at the infrastructures, there you can say that where you have natural monopoly networks effects and so on. So I would say that the problem is maybe not lack of competition between banks, but you have to regulate the infrastructures or have government-owned infrastructures or self-regulated structures that are non-profit like we have in Sweden that works quite well. But that is an empirical question, which of these uh, non-perfect market solutions you have to have for the infrastructures. But I would say that this means that then you have deposits rates that are lower for ordinary people than um, the uh, Fed funds rate. Uh, since if you, if you think that we have competition between banks, then the profit margin between the lending margin will be the same. Uh, so if you increase the deposits rate for ordinary people, then you will have to increase lending rates and then for a given federal fund rate, you will have higher interest rates for both lenders and borrowers. And since the Fed, Fed is um, required to uh, set the interest rate that gives uh, the right amount of inflation, then they would have lower the interest rates. I would say, that unlike my North American uh, lobbyist colleagues, I don't think it will affect uh, interest rates in equilibrium at all. Could Can I please ask? Absolutely. So that's a, uh, a, a multi-part uh, answer to that. So first on competition, I had a lot of pushback from the Bank Policy Institute uh, chief economist, Bill Nelson, saying uh, there are thousands of banks in the US banking system. How can you say that the banking system is not competitive? The Herfindahl indices suggest otherwise, but it's not the degree of concentration uh, that matters in this case. It's the cost of switching from one bank to another, whether to open or close an account. And also, uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to move funds from one bank to another. I'm not sure how the experience is in Sweden. You have direct transfers here. But in the United States, if you launch uh, a request on a bank website to move funds to another uh, bank, it's actually quite an operation. So. It's the competition that would come from a central bank digital currency or an interoperable fast payment system or other, uh, let's say, neobanks entering the system would be not to only to add more players to the market, but to lower the walls around the walled gardens that currently surround uh, the largest banks to make it easier to swish, if you don't mind the <laughs> metaphor, to swish your money from one bank to another. Uh, on the issue of whether raising deposit interest rates would also raise lending rates. Well, uh, I, I raised that issue and in fact the best available research uh, suggests no, it's not going to be the case uh, that 
once uh, deposit markets become more competitive, that lending rates must rise or credit provision must fall. Uh, the economics suggest otherwise. And uh, the reason, the main reason is, uh, uh, let's suppose if I could pick uh, David for example, if I'm making David a loan today, uh, and uh, the loan is profitable today, and then along comes a, a modernization of the payment system, and uh, my depositors now are requiring a higher rate of interest, I'm not going to tell David, you know what, uh, I was funding your loan before uh, because I was getting so much profit on the deposit side that I could afford to take a loss on the lending side. I would not have been making a losing loan before. If it was a winning loan, that it would, then it would still be a winning loan against the next best competitive alternative, which is wholesale market uh, lending and borrowing. And so if you just uh, uh, have a look, for example, at the new paper by Tony Whitehead, Wu, and Kairong Xiao, you can see that in general equilibrium, once uh, deposit market competition picks up, uh, the provision of lending does not actually fall significantly. Um, and similar research from Bank of Canada uh, shows uh, that the, uh, the full general equilibrium effect is uh, that when I have to raise my deposit interest rates, then, then Paula is going to be more likely to deposit money in my bank, not less likely. Okay, please. Professor Duffy, thank you very much. All of the, the whole panel very interesting. Uh, I'm Gabriela Igul from the Riggs Bank. Um, I completely agree with the justification on innovations in the payment market and CBDC, you know, preparedness for CBDC from the point of view of competition. However, uh, what I hear uh, in the discussion of central banks in advanced economies, in economies where um, cash is virtually not usable any longer, uh, one of the main arguments, and I want to try this argument with you, Professor Duffy, uh, is that the CBDC is necessary in, in the sense of providing central bank money to the general public, that without the presence of central bank money to the public, uh, we would lose the anchor to the whole monetary system. Uh, we would lose robustness in a monetary system. The ability to exchange central bank money to um, commercial bank money needs to be there. Um, what do you think about that argument? Well, first, I think it's an excellent argument, but there are counterpoints. Uh, so right now, uh, it, uh, many uh, unbanked uh, participants in uh, the economy are relying on paper money uh, because whether they don't uh, trust banks or they don't want to be documented or they find banks very expensive, they're relying on paper money. Uh, it is a possibly going to improve their access to the payment system if you add a central bank digital currency. Or if you don't make careful uh, planning, it could actually reduce their access uh, to the payment system because paper money, as in Sweden, would go out of circulation. My last visit here, I brought my paper money and I was simply unable to use it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that's one aspect of access to a, trust, a trustworthy payment medium may, could actually go down for some portion of the population in a country less advanced than Sweden, such as the United States. The, the second aspect is uh, this issue of trust. In my view, uh, 
the degree to which uh, trust needs to be based on an official currency versus on a bank-provided uh, payment medium like bank <coughs> deposits depends, of course, on the quality of the banking system and trust in the banking system. Uh, if you were to ask uh, very well-educated Americans what happens when you tap your mobile phone or your credit card, what ac actually is going on in the back end, if they know what that means, they generally have this uh, idea that what happens is you're instructing the bank to move official money that's being held in a pile at the bank to official take some of that stack and move it over to the other bank so that the other bank has more official money. Uh, they don't really think in terms of uh, the money that they are moving is somehow not trustworthy or it, the bank could fail and their payment might not work. Now, it's true that that's possible and it becomes a concern as the quality of the banking system declines. So in certain emerging market economies or advanced economies with weaker banking systems, I completely agree with the point that access to a trusted official money uh, is an anchor uh, and it, it's, a, it's a foundation uh, for trust in the payment system and it's necessary for the economy. But, but can I just, all, <clears throat> um, I'm just thinking that uh, in a, an economy that is digital, the central bank has to have a means, a way to, to uh, issue money. So it's quite natural, I would guess, that you have something, if it's CBDC or something else, where the central bank issues digital money instead of paper money. So I don't think that is anything strange, and I understand that that is the role of the central bank, has to be held at some point. I think that the trick is if you can connect that to the uh, real economy, if you want, or to the private economy in a, a very standardized way, because then if people would have the possibility of, of actually going between in a very uh, harmonized and, and easy way, then you have an economy where the central banks are in small countries like Sweden connected to somebody, uh, the other central bank that they need to be connected to in order not to invest uh, on their own only. And you have the, uh, the private economy actually being quite both resilient and, um, and connected to, to the ultimate goal of, of, of where the money is actually issued. So, so I think that's what we are trying to achieve at least, and, and then it makes sense to have some kind of a, a way of issuing money digitally. Uh, so that's kind of clever if you, if you could connect it too. If you have it silified, then it's potentially, there are hurdles in the economy for, for people to adhere to both. You have you know, a totally different way of, of connecting yourself to the central bank than you have to the, the private individuals and so forth, or to the private uh, sector then it creates maybe inefficiency. But if you connect the, the two with new technologies um, and um, potentially a, a centralized way for, for the, uh, the banks to connect themselves, which is what we are trying to do again, but in a, in a more future-proof way, then that might even work and actually deliver some, uh, some efficiencies in the back end. Because as you said, nobody cares about the back end, but that's where the real cost lies. So we have a very efficient front end but the banks, um, even in advanced countries like the Nordics, have legacy systems that are very costly um, and for no reason exist. And uh, we have, I don't know how many payment uh, formats that nobody's asking for, uh, while we don't have the instant payments that the industry needs for the sharing economy uh, in a good way, because then you have to, to rely on the cards um, structure still. So um, I think what we are trying to do is, is hybrid or a, a connected solution that um, might be um, world-leading. Let's see. <laughs> okay. Yes. 
<clears throat> yeah. Roger Storm, Euroclare Sweden. Uh, thank you for uh, stimulating talks. Um, what is will happen with the distinction, the traditional distinction between wholesale and retail with the CBDC? Classically, the, the, the large volumes is in retail, the large values are actually in wholesale. And a large part of the discussion that I'm sort of not seeing around CBDC is what will happen actually to securities markets, uh, which I represent, for example, Euroclare Sweden is a, a security settlement house. And what happens with the foreign exchange markets as the retail market moved to 24-7, instant, what will happen on the wholesale side? Any ideas? I have some views, but... No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Okay, so uh, as far as wholesale uh, CBDC, well, we have that now. It's uh, central bank deposits that are used heavily in the interbank market electronically for uh, settlement. What's missing there? Uh, well, we don't have smart contracting, so security settlement or foreign exchange settlement still relies on some counterparty risk and some delays. Uh, with advances in wholesale CBDC, we should expect the likelihood of digital ledger technology to improve the efficiency of wholesale settlements uh, and, and also cross-border settlements. Direct CBDC to CBDC is a uh, strong potential for improving the uh, cross-border payments. The Bank for International Settlements has been writing about this. So I think that there are avenues for improvement in the wholesale market, but um, uh, we already have a re relatively well-developed wholesale uh, CBDC uh, infrastructure, and uh, we should expect improvements there. Meanwhile, in the retail market, there's a lot, a lot of uh, potential improvements in technology and competition. And there is the future, you know, if you look ahead 10 or 20 years, to integrate retail and wholesale in a, in a uh, faster, more interoperable payment system so that money becomes much more fungible and uh, uh, the smart contracting can uh, take place between, at the, between the retail and the wholesale level much more easily. Uh, but I myself am not a uh, sufficiently expert at technology to forecast what the world will look like in 20 years. I, I do think it will look much different than it looks today. Yes, please. Now, the, just kind of a, a bit of an add, add on. And first, thank you for organizing this this early Friday, Friday morning. This is, of course, uh, highly, highly interesting for us on the central banking side. Uh, and, and here it's mainly about payments and, and how to make payments more efficient. On our side, I just take note of the fact that for the past 10 years or something like that, normally we add two or three more participants to our payment system. So there seems to be a movement when more and more banks or others are interested in actually participating in these payment systems. And that's probably because they have realized that something, something is going on here. Somebody's extracting rents out of, uh, out, out of this, and that, that matters. What also matters, and matters I think a lot going forward is Basically, CBDCs are intimately tied to payment systems. You could almost argue that it's almost one and the same. And that's important going forward because clearly a central bank or the central bank community can run things at cost because we don't need to extract rents out of 
out of these things. And these systems are costly to invest in, and you actually need to have scale uh, when you uh, when you run them. And that is basically where P27 comes from as well, because for particularly for small countries, after it, it becomes more or less impossible from a cost perspective to always build your own <clears throat> own systems. But having said this, in addition, and this is where David's uh, slide is a good one, when technologies change, age-old issues come back. Because basically, money is about what we have in our heads. But when technologies change, you have to revert to those old issues and ask yourself, what kind of a structure would we like to have given those new technologies? And that's what this sort of what these issues are are are, are all all about. And to David's slide up here, I mean, we actually in the early 1800s tried to have the national debt office issue its own money. So for a period, we basically had two central banks in the country, and that was a recipe for disaster. <laughs> and this is why these all age-old issues come back when technologies changed. We discussed in this country for about 20 years in the late 1800s, whether the banks should have the right to issue physical banknotes or not. And before that, that created all sorts of problems. So it was decided that the central bank should be the sole issuer of physical, uh, physical banknotes. Now, this issue comes back, and this is where the whole debate about CBDCs actually come from. But you have not touched on here, and this is important, this is really important, is that all of this does not matter at all unless you have a legal framework that works. This is about, we're, we're talking technology, but technology does not matter until you define what you move inside those technologies. So hand in hand with this, you also need to think hard about how do you define money in a completely digital world? Mm -hmm. And that's a separate project, and it's a very fascinating project, and a project, project sort of in its own in its own right. And in those nation states or groups of countries where they can come up with uh, good, reasonable legal definitions of, let's say, CBDC and digital money more broadly speaking, uh, then and you can combine that with new technologies, then you really have something, uh, something going. Thank you. Comment? Yeah, I can just comment one very quick thing. I fully agree. And the next part is the um, what we have here in the Nordic something called the Nordic Payment Council where you define the rules of transfer so and that is also an, an, a prerequisite of course for doing this I would just to touch on on Stefan's uh, historical remarks as well because I think this this issue of tokenizing deposits that will very much be like going back to the old system where mm -hmm. private banks mm -hmm. would actually issue their own mm -hmm. uh, currencies uh, and and that would actually eliminate perhaps the distinction between retail and wholesale uh, cl clearing, because you, you wouldn't need somebody in between to clear transactions between banks. The deposit will just flow between uh, customers directly. Uh, and, and of course, that would sort of bring back those issues to the front. Mm -hmm. is, is it better to have a centralized system for doing that and hence have a central bank issue CBDC <coughs> rather than going in the direction of the private banks uh, handling this themselves? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll just add, uh, there, the United States, which is way behind Sweden in terms of uh, innovations in its payment system, is grappling with exactly these issues. President Biden uh, this year issued a new executive order 
requiring uh, all relevant uh, U.S. agencies and departments to conduct a whole of government exploration of what should be the future of digital assets in the U.S. economy with a big focus on <coughs> CBDC and stablecoins and uh, crypto assets in general. And there is a, a great degree of questioning uh, about um, this issue of uh, access. Uh, the Fed, the U.S. Central Bank, is on the precipice of making a decision about access to uh, the, the Fed-provided payment system to non-traditional banks or payment service providers. Uh, uh, Fed Chair Powell said that this would be, quote, hugely precedential when he was interrogated on this point in his Senate confirmation hearings uh, this year. And the, the re I believe the reason comes back to this key issue uh, that our colleague uh, uh, raised earlier. Will this inhibit credit provision? Uh, for the Fed, this is a, a very, very, I think it's the most important issue that's preventing the Fed from jumping into this with both feet and saying uh, in its paper this year that it would require to move forward strong uh, uh, direction from both the White House and Congress, including legislation, uh, uh, so that the central bank is uh, responding to um, a, a, a more uh, global uh, 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 set of priorities uh, than the more narrow issue of, uh, uh, of who gets an account or what should the actual payment services providers be. Okay, <clears throat> we have like seven minutes or so for those who have unanswered questions. Per Strömberg. Uh, you need a microphone. Per Strömberg, I'm a Swedish House of Finance. I'm sort of thinking uh, uh, from a central bank perspective, you mentioned the fact that you might need the CBDC to kind of continue to effectively conduct monetary policy. Um, seems to me that the CBDC might actually improve your ability or at least give new ways to have like the monetary or the transmission channel, right? Because currently if uh, when interest rates, you know, the government changes interest or the central bank changes interest rates, nothing much happened to deposit rates at banks, right? <laughs> they are still zero. Um, but here you would actually have an immediate channel if everyone had deposited the central bank instead you would immediately see this difference in the interest rate on your central bank account, and there might be actually a different type of monetary transmission. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. And the second one is stability, too. Um, you know, as I was in, in Greece on vacation during the crisis, everyone, you know, there was no cash in any of the ATMs because, and none of the restaurants would take credit card, you know, because there was like this fear of a, of a run, I guess, where they didn't trust their bank accounts. Um, but if everyone now has uh, their deposits in the central bank, I guess we at least don't have depositor bank runs. And that, I would think, should do something to financial stability. Any no, <laughs> I don't, it wasn't really a, com a no, question, I mean, but are there any? I completely wrong. <laughs> no, obviously maybe, not. Maybe I can say something on the. Uh, <clears throat> like in the Swedish system, on the loan side, we already have a government-sponsored uh, bank, which may be seen as an attempt to sort of ward off uh, 
or increase competition a little bit in, in, in loan giving, SBAB, that actually gives consumer, uh, consumer loans. And, and this would be a little bit like that on, on the deposit side. Uh, I mean, they're also taking the deposits. SBAB, weren't they kind of famous for being the most aggressive mortgage lender? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they're aggressive, but the rates are, are uh, you know, I, I suppose they're, they're competing, essentially, trying to prevent uh, too much rents in, in, in that market. And maybe a little bit the same would, would apply here, perhaps. Uh, but, but I mean, it, it's one of the interesting things that we, we want to explore more. What are the monetary policy consequences of actually issuing a CBDC? And there has been some even helicopter drop uh, type uh, analogies being made and so on. We don't think they are, are you know, um, too applicable. But, you know, it, it's in, interesting to explore what the consequences would be for the scope of monetary policy implementation. Paula. Yeah, no, a little bit out, uh, outside scope, but as you mentioned, uh, the uh, the immediate interest rate effect on the CDBC account. I'm also thinking that we have had negative interest rates for yeah. 10 years in Sweden. And maybe as we have the governor here, would we have negative interest rates on a CDBC account? Well, techni technically you can do whatever you want, but of course it's a very hard sell <laughs> <laughs> with the negative policy rate. So. It's a bad, it's a bad, it would be a bad moment to start with the CBDC when, when you have a negative rate. <laughs> yeah, because that's a, an interesting one, yeah. On the monetary policy transmission, I agree that uh, if you have a CBDC, then you get faster implementation of monetary policy. And not only in the CBDC remuneration, if you have it, I don't think it will happen in the US that they will remunerate. But in terms of competition for bank deposits, we'll, we'll move those rates through faster. An, another very important aspect of monetary policy transmission that CBDC can improve is uh, with respect to currency substitution. If you're working in an open economy where there's a threat that your currency uh, may be supplanted or substituted with a foreign digital currency, uh, there's a risk that monetary policy will be meaningless because mm -hmm. everyone is using a different currency. And a CBDC uh, would uh, mitigate that problem by making uh, uh, more popular to hold the domestic currency. Morten Blix, <clears throat> while you give the hand the mic, I promise not to ask any questions, but I have one I want to throw in uh, <laughs> together with Morten. Um, would, would a significant use of digital currencies, what would it mean to sort of the uh, dollar dominance to the uh, sort of which is an asset to the US in, in very many ways. Does it have any, any significance for that? Please, yeah. Morten. So we'll have two questions okay. for in so, five minutes. Uh, Morten Blix, <coughs> a researcher at uh, Ratio. Uh, this is about efficiency, but there's another part of efficiency in the economy, and that's taxation, which in Sweden is, is very large, about half of GDP. Uh, it's all about uh, merchants, the VAT, income tax, all sorts of taxes that are levied. So when we think about uh, improving payments efficiency, how do we think about the tax authority in this context? And is there a, a way to improve the efficiency of taxation to reduce distortions or uh, to reduce uh, the black economy? I mean, the other boxes of the real economy that are, that are so important for overall efficiency. What do you think about that? Okay, those were two very different questions for the last five minutes, but dollar dominance and, and what it means to efficiency in the tax system. Who wants to? I, I would propose to yes, speak please. on dollar dominance. Okay. I'm, I'm sure that uh, <laughs> my, 
my no, colleagues I can will just, be more expert on tax. <laughs> no, no expert whatsoever, but I'm just thinking on the efficiency of payments. Of course, if there is a digital way of paying that is really easy <laughs> for everyone, um, that should um, improve at least the transparency in the tax system. I mean, we, we see that many countries in Europe, Italy, for instance, have gone into e-invoices mm -hmm. for everything on, when it comes to the government uh, part of, um, of the payments because they want to have a, a sender and a receiver that they can recognize. And back to the AML then, that you can actually use it for, for um, fraud prevention and, and anti-money laundry. So just in general, I think it's a very good enhancer of tax uh, but you might mean uh, the next step of, of collecting tax that I have no opinion on. Okay, Darren, Dom dollar dominance. On dollar dominance, well, the, uh, dollars uh, are going to be a problem for many countries if CBDC, US CBDC or US stablecoins start to become actively used internationally. If you've thought about the degree to which paper money is now used internationally mm. in, country, in, in many countries as a substitute, well, uh, electronic money is going to be even more powerful. And the, the US government has a conflict of interest because on the one hand, it wants to be a responsible citizen and not uh, uh, conduct aggressive uh, invasion of foreign monetary systems. But on the other hand, it wants the dollar to be dominant. Mm. It lowers the cost of financing uh, for, for Americans. It lowers their tax uh, bills and so on. If, if, however, they stand back and say, well, we don't want to invade those countries and another country <laughs> might do that, uh, then it becomes a form of currency competition. Mm. And I, I, uh, I'm not an American, but I would predict the American government will not stand aside as another large government uh, mm. allows its currency uh, to be used uh, aggressively and internationally. Okay, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for coming and joining us in this seminar. <laughs>